Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You are joining us for an episode here of Friends of the Forest. I am your host, Sarah. And I'm your other host, Brad. And we decided to switch up the intro this week. So we are going full chaos mode. Gotcha. For, <laughs> for this week's episode, we are finally, finally, finally chatting Mission to Disaster by Justina Ireland, which is the final book of the three that we typically get in a wave. Now I'm like really doing some on the, on the spot thinking here. The final book of the three of phase one and of wave three of phase one. It is the middle grade entry into this wave three and we are happy to talk about it this week glad it is finally here we've you know the book's release has been a little funky and we got a little bit behind but we're really glad to be finally talking about this one we know it's not going to be a mission to disaster is this episode and how many times can i use the air horn sounds on this episode one more time i hope you don't edit the sound in and just keep our imitations of the sound Maybe I'll, maybe I'll, maybe I'll think about it. And for those who have already listened to the sounds, you will know I did not do that. So let's continue. Oh, <laughs> darn. Darn. Alrighty. So before we get started, though, as is the case with every book review episode that we do here on the podcast, we have an independent bookstore of the week. So kick it off, Sarah. All right. So our independent bookstore of the week, you were like, probably like, wow, we're jumping in real fast, but there's not a lot of news this week. The only real news we kind of covered on the Kenobi trailer reaction is that we know we're getting celebration. It's actually happening. Tickets have regone on sale. Delray is going to be there and we're really excited. So that's, that's all the news in a nutshell. So, okay. Back to the bookstore of the week. Today's Did you buy bookstore, anything in the celebration store? No, I might buy the logo pin, but I just like haven't done it yet. Mm. You know? Yeah. I bought the uh, trio pin collection with uh, Padme, Anakin, and Obi-Wan. Of course. I was could. like, you know, if I'm going to buy any yeah. pins this year, it's going to be those three for Attack them. of the Clones. Yeah. So speaking yeah. of Attack of the Clones, we got some good stuff planned this next month. Oh. So get oh, ready. It's true. Get ready. And if you want to stay up to date on what we got going on, make sure you're following us on all of our socials, including Instagram and Twitter. So yeah. please do that because you don't want to miss the stuff. We've been talking about these plans for literal months now. So we're very excited to finally get going on them. So hopefully yeah. you will join us for our Attack of the Clones content coming up. We're very, very excited to revisit yeah. this movie that we both love. So anyway, that brings us to our independent books for the week. Going, getting all the way around to back to the topic and today's bookstore is a little bit different because since this is a children's book, technically as a middle grade, I wanted to choose a children's bookstore that specializes in selling, you know, children's books all the way from board books up through young adult. Uh, and this bookstore that I found is actually a brand new bookstore and is local to me in the Chicagoland area, which is very exciting. So my fellow Chicagoland listeners, if you have kids in your life or yourself that you want to go buy children's books for, this is a place to do it. And they are three stories books. They are a children's bookstore in Lamont, Illinois, that is like the southwest-ish suburbs. And they are uh, a new bookstore that was founded, I believe, in 2021. 2021, so like just just the other day, um, and they're serving essentially Lamont, Lockport, Homer Glen, Palos Heights, Downers Grove, Naperville, Burr Ridge, Orland Park, 
you might know one of those areas, you might know all those areas, you might know none of them, but that's about where the bookstore is. They believe in the magic of an, an imagination that books hold, and they offer story times, uh, local authors, as well as non-bookish or non-book gifts for children that are probably quite bookish as well. So they've got uh, books, toys, gifts, t-shirts, puzzles, and more. And I think it's really cool that I found them, not only because they're just, you know, not quite down the road, but local to me that I can go visit them, which I hope to do soon, but also because they are a brand new bookstore. So if you've got kids in your life that you want to go get books for, think about supporting Three Stories Books. Probably the best way to get books from them right now is in person. So this is perhaps a little bit more limited than some of our other bookstores that I've featured. Uh, But if you are in the area, go visit it because the pictures on their website look very, very cute. And I think this is probably a wonderful place for children's literature. And that means their staff is really knowledgeable about children's literature specifically too, because that's what they specialize in. So that's it. Three Stories Books, Lamont, Illinois at threestorieslamont.com. Awesome. Well, thank you for uh, giving us another indie bookstore to check out. And as I always say, better to support your local community and your local booksellers than it is to support giant corporations who don't need more tax breaks. So please go do that if you're able to, because it is uh, well worth it. So uh, with that being said, Sarah, we should Mm -hmm. just start to get right into the the episode. So we're going to talk like non-spoiler thoughts kind of right up front, give you a little quick overview of our of our impressions of the book now that we've had a chance to read it. So did you want to start with uh, how you felt about mission to disaster by Justina Ireland? Sure. So this book overall, I think is a lovely book. I think it's really suitable for the middle grade age range. And I love in this book that we have some of the returns of favorite characters that I loved from Attesta Courage. Oh yeah. At this, yes. I, I was so thrilled to see that. We'll talk more about it in a minute. But I think overall this book isn't as memorable for me as some of the other books in the High Republic have been. And I think it suffers just a little bit from the fact that it acts more as a lead up to the events of the fallen star um, as opposed to being like a full and complete emotional arc within itself. Um, We do get some of those like emotional uh, end points. However, there's there's a sense of like what's happening next at the end of this book that I wish we had gotten a little bit more of a conclusive factor on. That being said, I also understand like the odd position that this book is in because the events of the fallen star are incredibly depressing um and if i were writing a book for middle grade ages i wouldn't want to focus on the events of the fallen star as the events of my book so i I totally totally get it and i think that there is a lot of really great fun stuff to enjoy in this one so overall i have positive feelings wish it were a little bit more punchy but i was really glad for some of the excellent um moments that we got in this book yeah yeah i agree with pretty much most of what you said and i would say uh, this book is in an interesting position because, you know, it was originally supposed to be uh, released in print form on January 4th alongside The Fallen Star. So I wonder how we feel. I wonder if you would feel differently having read this first in like a physical form before getting into The Fallen Star. Because like we we both read Fallen Star like right off the bat. Yeah. Um, but but it did come out in ebook form and audiobook form on the day it was originally supposed to be released. So it was kind of this weird thing where i feel like the book got overlooked a little bit um by some mm-hmm. of the community but yeah overall i feel like the book does what it needs to do for a middle grade you know it presents a story and um it's a conclusive story and it gives us some good character beats and some uh really good uh you know 
emotional moments where the characters are dealing with uh, their place in the galaxy and um, some of their insecurities that they're facing and overcoming some of those insecurities, which is exactly what you would expect out of this sort of uh, genre. And um, it's just Dina's return to middle grade after a test of courage, which I which I really loved. Um, and, and Justina also did Out of the Shadows for YA, which is a an amazing book. So I always appreciate Justina's uh, her perspective that she brings to it and the things that she prefers to focus on. I think that's all great. And um, I'm excited to see like, you know, where these characters sort of end up in, in the future of this initiative, because um, they, they do some pretty interesting things in this book. And I, I want to see uh, where that all ends up. Yeah, I totally agree with you that, you know, these are some really exciting characters and we've really enjoyed following their story over this first phase of books. So I am very much looking forward to seeing where they go in phase three, I assume when we return to this time period. I want to touch on what you said about the January slash March release. I do think that that sort of oopsies, I don't really know what happened there. If the publisher failed to just change the date on the, you know, on the databases that would allow the book to be pushed back, I have no idea what happened there. But yeah, I think it dampened some of the buzz around the book because some people were reading it in January and then not talking about it. And some people were reading it in March in the print book um, and talking about it. But then those people from January weren't necessarily joining in the conversation. So I think it's been a bit uneven in its release. And I wish that this book had actually been released prior to The Fallen Star. I know mm -hmm. that typically we have gotten the middle grade and the adult novel released on the same day, but I really wish that this one had the opportunity to really like preempt The Fallen Star because of its lead up to the events of The Fallen Star. I think it would have been I think it would have been just a better continuity in the flow for this wave at the end of this phase. Um so I think that's complicated and it's a bummer because I don't think this one ended up actually hitting the bestseller list, uh, probably because of that, mm -hmm. um, sort of thing where I, maybe some of the sales counted weirdly because of this situation. So I will say I have actually read the book twice. I read the book in print in January and then on audio in March and I did really enjoy, well, in print by in print, I mean ebook i didn't get the book you know two months early when they were having difficulties in supplying it but uh the ebook is i think really energetically narrated um and the sound effects are really well done as well and there was a moment like right in the beginning where i thought oh is this one going to be overproduced and the answer is ultimately no it is not it's it's really free-flowing throughout it feels really nice you're very immersed and i think that the main narrator does a good job at capturing the spirit of the book so this is definitely an audiobook that you could put in front of a middle reader middle grade reader and they would enjoy because it has that sort of energy that is perfect for the middle grade category yeah and i will say too like this book has some great characters in it you know even though we didn't necessarily feel as compelled by the sort of lead-up story that we got i think the characters themselves are so interesting and so complex and have like really unique traits that make them super memorable. So like ultimately when I read this book, even though it was a pretty straightforward, you know, beginning to end plot, um, it's, it's those moments with those characters like that where they shine that I, that, that I took away. And that's kind of what most of what we're going to be talking about today are the characters and, and what they go through. And even some of the, the political scope of this book as well, because there are some politics involved and, um, that's all very interesting. So I'm very excited to uh, to dive into that because you and I are suckers 
for politics in the higher public. Again, politics in the Star Wars that brings us back to our Attack of the Clones coverage coming soon on Friends of the yes. Force podcast. <laughs> Do it. Listen to us. I guess. I guess with that that Palpatine um, interjection here, that brings us to um, kind of a, the bulk of our conversation, which is going to be all about, you know, as Brad said, these characters and some of the big ideas that are going on throughout this book. So where do you want to start, Brad? Full spoilers from here on out, just so you know, people. There's their warning. <laughs> Whether you read the book in January, February, or March, everybody read it differently. Uh, or, we are going to be talking beyond. about it. Or beyond. Yeah, if, if you're, you're listening, listening to this, this podcast in the future. Let's start with uh, the return of some of our favorite characters. So we have Honesty right. Weft and Avon Steros, who were uh, big standouts in A Test of Courage. I love both those characters. You know, we missed Honesty from uh, Wave 2 of Phase 1. People were like, where's he at? And we thought maybe he would appear in Out of the Shadows uh, because Justina wrote, wrote that character originally. So I was very happy to see, to see him return and to see Avon be such a focal point of this book. So yeah, we see the return of both these characters. And um, Avon is one of those characters who I have uh, such an admiration for because she's so like mechanically minded she's really good at engineering she can slice things she knows how parts work i feel like her and, and ram would really get along well if they if they linked up uh <laughs> to, solve, to solve a problem together because you know his force powers and her brain could go far could go far so um they could they can achieve anything but uh yeah i think uh it was really great though to see justina continue to write these characters specifically and and to continue with Vern and emery and um, I appreciate that she has sort of uh, captured their voice throughout each of the waves. And uh, I'm excited to see maybe how some of uh, Honesty's story and his knowledge of Dalna and all that factors into phase two. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But what did you think of these char two characters returning? I think there was a group chat that I was in that had mentioned, oh, yeah, I got to chapter 10 and was so excited to see that person show up. And I went, what's happening? Luke Skywalker? He's in Luke the book? No, no, no. Uh, I'm like, is Honesty return? Is Honesty back? I hope Honesty is back. And then Honesty returned, and I was like, that's my boy. Um, I was so excited to see him because he's just a precious, good kid. And I really enjoyed his presence in A Test of Courage. So was so thrilled to get him back. And it made sense. It made like total sense that we would get him back, especially if we're arriving on Dalna, which is his home planet, as we know. Um, so I loved that. And of course, having Avon back, not only as a supporting character, just as a part of the story, but as like one of the A plots, I would say there are like two dueling A plots in this book. Um, or maybe it's just the single A plot because Vernestra and Imri are following Avon. Anyway, I'm not a writer. Um, <laughs> having Avon be like a key character in this book was so exciting because we're also seeing her a little bit more grown up than we initially saw her mm -hmm. because some time has passed since the beginning of the phase. So it was really, really lovely to get into her brain here, to hear more of her perspective, to see how spunky and she is and to see really her mind at work and to see how clever she is. So it was just a real thrill to get both of them back. And it felt like we were getting the gang back together for my test of courage. And I was glad to see it. And I, and I seriously do hope we can see these characters, all of them in phase three, because Avon is such a strong character. And yes, she really is one of the smartest people mm -hmm. in the whole dang galaxy at this point. So, um, would love to see her be best friends with everybody. Really? 
you talk about Avon growing up and, and part of me wonders, are we going to get another time jump for phase three, like by a year? Right. Cause I think wave two to wave three was, uh, or maybe w wave one to wave two, I think was like a couple months to a year, um, from the great disaster to Valo. So I'm like, I don't want to keep watching my youngins grow up. I don't want to see them grow old too fast. You know, I want to, to, uh, watch them succeed i want to watch them grow and i want to watch them learn their lessons and i think that's some of the the joy of this book is watching these characters deal with uh some of the typical problems that you face growing up and honesty is also a character that has definitely grown quite a bit as well because last time we saw him his his dad had passed away aboard the um the steady wing i believe it is what it was called um, because of a Nile attack, and now he's with this uh, girl named Shanai, who they're sort of partners as part of their apprenticeship in the uh, the the core, and uh, they're learning together and growing together. And you know, honesty kind of says at one point that uh, towards the end of the book that he doesn't want to come back to to Dalna, even if it's stabilized from all the volcanic activity, because he just hasn't felt it's been the same since his father passed. And, uh, that definitely, that definitely hit for me, right? Because we talk a lot about the high Republic being, uh, about a group of largely younger Padawans who are growing in a world that is requiring them to grow very fast. Yeah. And so here you have honesty saying goodbye to, you know, the only home he's ever known and basically accepting that and understanding that it can never be the same because of what's happened right and so um that is a very relatable feeling as somebody for myself who's moved a lot growing up you know you leave one place and you try to come back and um it's just not the same as when you left it and so i definitely related to uh to honesty in that way you know coming back to an environment that uh, you want it to you want to be like feel like you're at home but something's off and you just can't quite put your finger on it and then once you do you realize you should move on and so i thought that was really interesting to hear for his story and um you know he mentions maybe joining the santeca clan um but also offers to Vern that he can help her in the future if needed so i i think that's definitely leaving the door open for him coming back and i'm excited to see how much he matures and being off on his own and truly leaving the the doll in the nest yeah, and I think it's really interesting that we've gotten to watch them grow over this time, as you mentioned earlier, because part of me wants to be like, no, don't grow up too fast, slow down. Like, I want to see each day in the ways that you're growing. Yeah. Um, but we've really only seen these characters two to three times. What are you talking about? I've known them for 10 years. I know. 10 to 15 years of my life. <laughs> but it's not true. You haven't. You've known them for one calendar year. And in that time, they've grown more than one calendar year, essentially, ah. it seems. It's and crazy. part of me wants to watch them grow at a slower pace so I can just like know them better. But it also presents this really exciting opportunity over time to, to give them new challenges as they grow older and for them to kind of ask new questions or explore problems in new ways. And I really think we see that with both um honesty as he comes back to Dalma and ultimately realizes that that place isn't his place anymore and you know is is going to go on this new path but also it's really exciting to see Avon challenge these new questions because in a lot of ways her personality has stayed the same she's a fighter she's someone who's tenacious she's someone who's smart and who will apply herself at every turn but you also see her having to wrestle with a different calculation for herself and the other kids that she's stuck with um and there's this great sentence pretty early on where it's where it says avon has had an 87.3 percent 
rate of success when it comes to hijinks and varying shenanigans. And I think that's just like a really great summary of who she is because, you know, she's smart, she's capable, and she also likes to mess around a little bit yeah. and, and be a little silly uh, in her trial. She doesn't take herself too seriously, even though her work is often serious. And in this sort of environment that she's in, she is getting to the place where she wants to be like academically. She's working with uh, Professor, Glenna, Professor Glenna Kipp on these crystals, and she's about to be able to get... Uh, get somewhere you know and actually do something exciting but the crystals and then she is kidnapped but let's be clear this is now the second time that avon staros has been kidnapped mm -hmm. justina what the heck <laughs> that's a lot of times for a child that's two times more than any child needs to be kidnapped in their you know lifetime I think we should be blaming we should be blaming gira staros here because uh, you're gira, actually right gira is like in cahoots with the nile She's a complicated figure. She is. We can talk about her more in a minute, but I, like Avon being kidnapped twice is a lot of times. And I think also tells you something about Avon that she's smart enough to, and smart enough and like savvy enough to, and, and just lucky enough to get out of both of these situations alive. Um, and so the Nile kids kidnaps her this time and immediately she's put in this, this group with the other kids whose names are Kryland, Petri and Liam, who are other kidnapped children. But immediately once she's kidnapped, she goes, okay, how can we get out of here? How can I get out of here? If I get out of here and send a communication to J six, then like J six can come and get me. Um, if I can get out of here and be able to fix up this little game console that they give me, then I can be able to send a communication. She's constantly trying to think of new ways that she can not only help herself, but help others, um, those that in this, she's in the same situation with. So I think it's really interesting that she continues to go for it during this book. Yeah, and it presents a unique situation for her because she, I mean, she is being used for her, for her abilities, and um, that's why she's chosen amongst the other kids to sort of help Dr. Uh, Kempa and it presents a um a situation for her where she feels at fault for everything that happens later in the book between the the Dalnin fault break uh causing a bunch of volcanic eruptions and the fact that she stole Emery's kyber crystal and she's got to apologize to him later on so she kind of feels all this guilt and maybe some of it is is from uh you know built up from her past as well for from being kidnapped the first time i think she felt a little guilty about that as well and and um you know what it meant for her mother's reputation and how her mom felt about that when she she realized what had happened so um a lot of a lot of guilt building up for for her but i think in the end she sort of comes to terms with it and is comfortable enough to to move forward and i think we could maybe talk about the apology to to emery because i think that's a big learning lesson for for her so the apology is really interesting because it comes at the end of the book and like like right at the end of the book and i believe it's vernestra who encourages avon to apologize for stealing the crystal and there's this great line where it says avon never liked apologizing but she immediately felt better after she had handed him the crystal and then she realizes that emery was like soothing her through the forest and she's like come on um <laughs> and you know, they kick J6 out and Emery's like, Avon, I already knew that you did this. And she's like, you did? And she's like, who else would have, who else 
would it have gone to? Like, where would it have gone? Who would have mm-hmm. taken it? Who would have been interested in that? And Imri says, I guess I figured that it was in good hands. You're the smartest person I've ever met, Avon. If someone could figure out what or how to use a kyber for more than just lightsabers, some kind of thing that could help lots of people, it would be you. And that and says, this is on 258, that made Avon feel like crying all over again. Um, and Imri goes, I'm not mad. We're all good. Don't worry about it. Hey, do you want him to wear the halcyon with me? You know, and so then you get the kind of twist around like, hey, it's okay. Like, it, we don't even need to spend time on this because I trusted you to do the right thing here. And I think that that really allows Avon to, when she starts to cry again, I think she's processing her own guilt. Like, oh, I didn't need to feel guilty about this. I could have avoided that guilt if I had just said something. But also, I'm really touched by my friend's trust in me and my friend's belief in me that I'm destined for something great. And I think that's a really powerful and lovely thing here. And um, I like that Avon kind of learns these lessons all at once. Yeah. It says it's okay to apologize, right? Like it's okay to, to confront those things and um, to own up to your mistakes, especially. Right. And when we talk about the middle gray genre, that's like an important lesson to teach. Yeah. And not only to own up for your mistakes, but also, um, to recognize that you didn't need to harbor all of this shame and guilt about it yeah. in the first place, because mm-hmm. you know, if she had spoken up about it earlier, she could have gotten that affirmation from Imri earlier and that might've changed something for her for the better. But I also just think it's wonderful how strong their friendship is and that Imri is kind of touched in a way that, that she kind of took it and that she knew she would, he knew that she would use it for something good. And, um, I think that sort of belief in someone else is is really powerful. Speaking of kyber crystals, I think we should talk more about Avon's time with the Nile and her production of flawed crystals with Dr. Encampa because we kind of learned something at the end of this book that kind of makes the rest of the book feel just a little bit more interesting here. And I don't want to, you know, spend too much time on it because we'll talk more about like the Nile as the Nile a little bit later, but we learn that Gira knows who Dr. Encampa is and therefore kind of knows that Dr. Encampa was the one that she was working under during her time of, I guess, imprisonment by the Nile. Mm-hmm. And Avon is like, did you tell her this? And everybody else is like, no. She goes, well, I didn't tell her this either. Interesting. And you as a reader go, light bulb. Interesting, interesting. Light bulb. <laughs> Uh-oh, spaghetti How does she know that? How does she know that? But that makes it really an interesting kind of position because we know that um, Avon ended up with Dr. Encampa after, I believe it was Deva Lompop, like gave them an old game. And Avon was like, oh, look we don't need to just play this game. We can take all of its component parts out and put them together in this new way in order to help us escape. And she gets out. So she opens the door, she gets out. Um, and there's devil on pomp. Like I knew you were smart enough to figure this out, but also like how did devil on pomp know to think, think about and do this. Had they been in communication with Gira stars the whole time, because there has to be some sort of communication to understand that Avon is now, quote unquote safe within the Nile. Like the, mm-hmm. she's not at risk of selling, being sold to the Zygerians, whereas like the other kids perhaps actually are. 
because they don't have a powerful senator mother who's aligned with the bad guys. Yeah. You know? Um, so I think that's a really interesting thing. So she ends up doing the same kind of sort of work that she did with Dr. Kip in producing these kyber crystals um, and using her knowledge base to do this um, for the Nile. And she goes, huh, I'm not actually going to help them. I'm going to hurt them by producing these flawed crystals that are going to break apart when they're used. What did you think about that decision from Avon? And like, what did you think about her involvement with Dr. Encampa? It was very smart of her to recognize what was happening and, and try to, you know, it was very Galen Urso of her, mm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. a flaw so small that they wouldn't notice. Right. Dr. Encampa also <laughs> probably should have noticed the fact that like these crystals were not as solid as they mm-hmm. should have been if she's so smart with crystals. But anyway... But anyways, though, but but I think in a way, Avon is smart enough to use Dr. Macampa's, uh own overconfidence against her, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. at one yeah. point, when when Avon really wants to set her plan into motion, she's like, hey, like, wouldn't it be great if we could put this thing on display and all the other Nile who have doubted you kind of see what they what what they should have believed in from the start and that you're the best and all this other stuff and she's like yeah yeah i'm gonna do that you know and that's when all the shit hits the fan right because mm-hmm. you know they, she goes to test the crystals and the crystals work their work their doomsday magic but you know again that feeds into avon's guilt that you know she sort of causes this chain reaction on donna because we know it's a very young planet with a very active volcano system and the Nile purposely set this stuff up, uh, these obelisks up on that fault line in order to terraform the planet and cause as much chaos as possible, right? It's one of those things where it's like, she's like, I came up with a smart idea and like, look what it led to. And, you know, again, I don't think that's her fault at all. She did what she had to do with the resources that were given to her and she she used her situation to her advantage. You know, she was she kind of had an in with the Nile and she had her whole laboratory at her disposal. But uh, it also makes me think, though, you know, just speaking of of uh, mothers in the High Republic being a part of the bad guys, I wonder if Avon and Sylvester will ever cross paths. She's like, oh, your mom also was in the Nile. My mom, too. Oh, my God. You know, like, I want them to bond over that a little bit and see maybe if they can uh, have a heart to heart and coping with that reality, because I think they could learn a lot from each other. But. I do want to make note of uh, one comment early on in the book when she's studying the crystals at Port Halep, and uh, she's wondering if kyber crystals could be used for you know more applications by harnessing some of the radiation and ambient energy of space to become more powerful. And it says, quote, with so much random radiation, the like just floating around, could they somehow duplicate the kyber structure to direct that energy to power entire planets? Hmm. And here I am going... Did Avon just invent the Death Star? <laughs> Speaking of Galen Urso, <laughs> she like she invented just invent the, the opposite Death Star? Death Star. She invented like the Life Star here. The <laughs> Life like, Star. What if instead of blowing up planets, we powered them? You know, she's like, let's do it. You know, and, and she mean, she seems so eco friendly here because she's like, oh I want to take yes. I want to take Tabana gas and I want to make it more efficient. We got to replace mm. fuel. Like we mm. love eco friendly Avon Steros. We love it. We do. And, a real queen. You know, she is. She's got to create the life star at some point. I think the life star. I support. <laughs> Hashtag that. create the life star. I support that, and I guess we also don't actually know if there are any planets that are doing this. Perhaps like. 
I think it's plausible that this ultimately has happened between the time we're reading about and the time of episode nine, you know, or that they're researching this. Like, I don't think this is actually that far off in terms of potential ability. Well, and Starkiller base takes energy in and spits it out. It's interesting. And that's a planet. That's a planet. Yeah. R.I.P. That's kind of a, a planet that is powered. Although it's I don't a, know if, if it uses kyber crystal, right? Well, it's Ilum. So yeah, it's full of yeah. kyber. Yeah. Yeah. So hmm. rest in peace, Ilum. Yeah. Yikes. Rest in peace. What are the Jedi going to do now, Ray? What, the, what are you going to do, man, my friend? Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's all very interesting. And we love little nods to other things in canon. And that was a, a great little nod. Do you have anything, you know, more to, to, to conclude our conversation on like Avon's ingenuity and just how wonderful of a character she is? Cause I think I could go on and on in circles about how great I just think she is. No, I don't think so. I mean, we're talking a lot about the Nile and how they captured Avon. So let's sort of transition into what they've, what they've been up to and, and, and a big revelation that this book gave us, which is that the, the Nile are kidnapping children and they either want to force those children to become Nile themselves and if they refuse they will be sold to Zygarian slavers which not great it's not great and you know this is a this is an issue that's definitely been tackled across Star Wars whether it is um, people being sold into Zygarian uh, servitude which we know that Lorna D from Tempest Runner was sold uh, to the Zygarians Um, we know that stormtroopers in the sequel trilogy um, they were brain scalped and uh, they were children that were kidnapped to become stormtroopers as part of the First Order and sort of indoctrinated that way, which I wish that story would have had more of a more teeth. of a, you know, more. Yeah, a little bit more uh, pull to it. Uh, yeah. I think that was really compelling stuff. But I yeah. love that it's being presented in in the High Republic, which, you know, we also see with with Afi Hollow and the Bind Guild, how the Bind Guild was uh, indenturing people to uh, to do work for them. Right. So uh, that that's all interesting how this keeps popping up. And this really uh, you get an inside look as to what happens when you do get kidnapped and you're forced to make that choice of do I help the Nile or do I get sold into something that is even possibly worse than serving the Nile? I, it's, it's a tough choice. And, and Avon is strong to make that choice, um, despite little to no information about her circumstances and, and if there is a Jedi on the way to help her. Yeah, I, I do think this is, a, I like kind of want to take it back and, and talk about the central question or the central idea that's happening here. And that the Nile, not known to be kidnappers of people at all, are now not just kidnapping people, but they're kidnapping children. You know, the most vulnerable among us, the most impressionable among us, uh, with the end goal of them either like being forced into work with the Nile, which is essentially slavery they're not they're not choosing this path from themselves or being sold as slaves to the zygerians their choice is an impossible one either they help terrible people do terrible things or you know they have no you know maybe they're hardly given living conditions if they're sold to zygerians like they're they're, that's a completely unknown to them and so like this is truly an impossible situation and if you're a bad guy also a great way to bring people over to your side with the right. idea of building up the next generation of people as well. Right. Like, cause if you're, if you're grabbing children, you know, that child is going to have 40, 50, 60 years that they're not going to be able to get out of this, you know, oppressive situation. If you're a bad guy, that's a great, that's a great option for you. 
but it is a terrible option if you are just not the bad guys, if you're literally anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's an, it's an awful, awful thing. So it's fascinating that even in the book, um, even in the book, I think somebody mentions, oh, that's an odd thing for the Nile to be doing. They're not, not known to do that, but that's clearly changed with maybe because their numbers are dwindling, maybe because they see that they need to keep everybody in check and also to create this cycle of fear that the Nile want everybody to live under. Um, and so it's a powerful tool and it's clearly working on the Dolnans who are then keeping quiet about the situation, which helps literally no one. Um, but yeah, we've talked about um, slavery and indentured servitude on past Star Wars conversations, specifically around Claudia's work. Um, and this is something that's really interesting because you go back to the prequels and and Qui-Gon essentially says, you know, we're not here to free, free the slaves. And when he gets Anakin, he doesn't take Shmi with him, you know, because he's like, he's going to train as a Jedi. Therefore, we, you know, have to leave the family. But like, he doesn't really free her. And ultimately, Obi-Wan, Anakin, and Qui-Gon leave, this, leave Tatooine and leave the situation with still this culture of enslavement on the planet. And it's really not as dressed as it should be within that sort of situation, within that film and within that storyline. And I do think that Claudia has really worked to kind of fill the gap between bringing up the topic of a slavery or indentured servitude and then actually addressing it and talking about it as a bad thing and working to rectify it. We really see that with um, Master and Apprentice, with Pax and Rahara and that whole storyline. And then we see it again in Into the Dark, as you mentioned, with the Bind Guild and with Afi Hollow and what she does to take action against um, Scover and the Bind Guild as a whole. And I think it's been really valuable for Kaladi to tackle this um, because it does bring up these really great conversations within Star Wars. And this book, I don't think, does as much to talk about tackling that conversation. Um, but I think it's also worth mentioning that this is a middle grade novel, whereas the others have been YA and adult level novels. So there's like there's a bit of a different um, audience, a different scale, um, and a different focus for these books where while this issue is coming up and while the Jedi ultimately do help many of the children that are harmed by the Nile here, um, it's not an idea that is like explicitly interrogated, although it's like universally knowledge is bad. Yeah. You know, by our characters. And so it's, it's really interesting that it returns here and it's also interesting. And I don't know what it says like about the Nile other than like, Oh, they really, really suck. Um, right. You know, but it but it's a fascinating topic to have appear in this space. Yeah, and I, I think you make a great point about the genre does matter. I don't necessarily think this book had to dive into it any more than it than it did, right? Because it does still present the conditions and and the reality for Avon of like what's gonna happen to those other kids and that kind of settles in, right? So like that emotion yeah. that she's feeling is almost all we need to know. However, I do wonder by Justina, including this in the book, like what is this going to set up for future books? Yeah, you know, for sure. H- how are the Jedi going to address slavery and and indentured servitude when it's being done by their enemies that they're fighting constantly? Right. Whereas in the prequel trilogy, uh, slavery is happening happening on Tatooine. Like we're not in like fighting mm. with 
the huts that's not our opponent so we're gonna like let it slide right yeah, so like what's sure. what's gonna happen now that it's like oh our enemies are doing this you know it's like our like i just and and that really brings up a whole new issue of like the jedi are maybe only fighting these issues when it's convenient for them and they're very selective mm. about when they address these issues right so like what happens between the high republic and and the prequel trilogy for them to sort of start turning a blind eye to those things and again we haven't seen how they're going to address this or if vernestra is going to tell them about what's happening and we don't know all the ramifications just yet but it's going to present a really interesting problem and i'm curious as to how the jedi are going to react if they're going to be the jedi at the prequel trilogy and not think about it um or if they're going to tackle it head on and make sure that the the Jedi are trying to prevent this as much as possible, because, uh, like you said, fear is a powerful motivator, and um, war is a lot of times a numbers game. So if if the Nile can get the numbers, then and they just keep growing and growing and growing, what's to stop them? And even Vernester wonders, like, if the Dalnan officials have turned a blind eye to this and haven't really said much how many other planets are sheltering the Nile out of fear and letting them take their children away. Right. So it's a very, very scary issue to be uh, realizing is happening. And yeah, the Nile are, are really much worse than we probably thought. And I think there's a lot of internal strife happening between different tempests, right? Cause are other tempests doing this or is it just Karazu? Right. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Does it come down from the top or is it just, is it just one faction? Either way, it's pretty dang bad. It's terrible, yeah. You know, like, it's it's really bad. And I do want to say, like, I think it's not only the Jedi who have this responsibility to help in these sort of situations, but the Republic as well. Oh, yeah. You go back to Into the Dark, and when Affy reported the situation with the Bind Guild to the Republic, the Republic responded within the day. You know, you go from that sort of efficiency, that sort of level of care for these sort of situations to this, you know, we're not here to free the slaves. We're just not going to do anything about it. Sort of a deal of the Phantom Menace. It's a really, really dramatic, drastic turn. So, I mean, I think you bring really, really bring up a fascinating conversation is, is this something that the Jedi and the Republic are going to tackle? Is this something that they're going to say, oh, this is bad, yet when it happens on their soil later down the road, they're just going to, you know, turn a blind eye and look around and go, do, 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 what? You know, and and mm-hmm. I do think that says something about, you know, our real world politics and, and real world situations where you can see it happening right now with like the war in Ukraine. Oh, my gosh. War. So bad. These things that are happening to civilians, so bad. And they are so bad. The things that are happening are like beyond comprehension, I think for so many of us. And at the same time, these things have been happening our entire lifetimes in different parts of the world that we just pay less attention to Mm -hmm. as a country, as a society in news media, because we see the or other situations as other, you know, not us, them. And that's so flawed, but also at the same time as that's happening, there are terrible things happening on our soil here in the U S that we just literally do not put much attention to things that are happening at the border, you know, things that are happening in prisons and jails to people. So it's, it's, it's a very kind of extended length kind of commentary on a very, very big picture political idea which i think is really fascinating Mm -hmm. to bring up here if you're able to make those connections from this book to where we are in 200 years um again just like a really fascinating conversation that i am grateful i guess that star wars has continued to have in its publishing sphere and i hope that we continue to like 
dive into the political, social ideas here and the ways that the Republic um, is an active member in stopping it or is complicit in allowing it to continue by their inaction. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of the Nile, too, now let's let's talk about the the big three villains in this book who are all, Saoirse Ronan voice, women. Women. And women. I think that this really is saying that, like, hey, women have every ability to be as awful as male villains have always been. And I think we often see villainy or badness uh, as masculine or male coded, oftentimes. And the way that women are often coded as villains is like, often very like seductively like oh they're seductive think of a character like poison ivy who uses her her charm her sultriness to to lure others in and that's often how we see women villains and i'm I'm glad you know that we get three women villains that are different from one another that are powerful in their own ways in ways that are like not necessarily coded as masculine or feminine um and have individual stories to tell. Uh, and I think the differences between somebody like Kara Zhu and Dr. Nkempa are really interesting because, you know, Kara Zhu is a leader. Dr. Nkempa is there, is there because she's like, yeah, they gave me the opportunity to do this and I love this power and it's very interesting to me. So, and then you have Deva Lompomp who like will eat you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> this is something else entirely. And also her species lives a really long time as we have learned because she shows up in a comic, you know, 250 years down the line yeah. um introduced but, before this book by by justina's comic specifically yeah the bounty hunters so that was really i was like oh my god justina what a what a power play right there and she's got rainbow feather hair <laughs> yeah she's freaking awesome i was like she should show up in book of boba fett lo and behold she didn't but she showed up in the higher public so i will take take it where i can get it so what did you think of this trio together and and how did you think um these villains perhaps all being women women does that mean anything to you does you have anything to like like oh that that reminded me of this or that made me think of something else i think they're all great i think that i mean like what they do is not great but I, like no, as villains i think they're great they're great villains because you know kara zoo it's interesting because she's filling the void left behind by and uh you know she (laughs) and 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 panetta filled the void of kasav so i'm wondering if if kara is gonna live that much longer because it seems like that spot has a lot of turn has a big turnover rate doesn't go so so well for them generally doesn't go so well yeah but you know between her and lorna d uh women they're starting to lead the denial a little bit you know martian martian's gonna have to watch himself because um these are really powerful people who will go to great lengths to uh, try to overthrow the eye. And, you know, we see that with Lorna and I know I kind of get the sense that, that Kara is not going to be messed around with. And, um, you know, Dr. McCampa is, is obviously somebody who really prides herself on her knowledge. And, you know, we, li- we learn a little bit of backstory about how she used to be this munitions expert and uh, this she, what she calls quote unquote beautiful civil war on soika that gave scientists an opportunity to experiment she was a part of that and she's like messed um, up messed up yeah like the fact that she <laughs> sees that war as beautiful says a lot about her character and um, even though the war died off when the republic intervened she didn't pursue academia because she's like what i want to do is not it's it's not kosher in, in academia it's like that's yeah. kind of terrifying that's that's really scary but you know i, I think it's sort of interesting to 
get this type of mad scientist character and Mm -hmm. the nile are really leveraging some of those people right i mean you have chancy yarrow who is is a scientist as well who studied hyperspace right and the nile brought her aboard and um and dr utersand uh, another scientist mm-hmm. so they have like really powerful people who are a part of the nile and it's no wonder that they keep outsmarting uh the jedi and the republic because these people that are the smartest of the group are often the ones that were outcast by the yeah. republic because of their studies sure. and all this other stuff mm-hmm. that was going on right so it's really fascinating and then yeah like deva lompomp being somebody who was um previously introduced in in uh, empire strikes back era storytelling and seeing her here uh is really really cool and i I love that we know what she looks like Uh, i hope we get some character art of her like in the high republic era because obviously there's plenty of her now but i want to see what she looked like then is it that much different Um, i will say that like by mentioning these like trio of women villains that i'm did not mean to erase lorna d from this conversation because like oh my god lorna d like holy goodness lorna d she's an incredible villain but I think we you know when we when we see women villains, they're often alone. And we, for the longest time throughout this phase, saw her alone amongst Paneta, Kasav, you know, Martian Rowe, uh, and all the power players, right? So for her now to have the company, you know, in terms of position, status, and villainy of Karzu, Deva, and Doctor Incampa is just a really sort of interesting turn in the gender balance of power of the nile um especially when you consider marie santeca as a woman and she held the paths well she held the paths, but she was also not evil right you know like but the fact that you know the men of the nile are building upon the success and and of of, of women um who are behind the the scenes right and even even asgar roe killing his own mom who was sort of the the head honcho Anyway, anyway, it seems like there's some very patriarchal, oppressive qualities to the Nile system. Seems and, like it. You know, I appreciate the girl bossing <laughs> of my girls, um, Lorna T. Kara Zoo. Part of me is like, Kara, Lorna, overthrow it all, burn it all down to the ground. You know, and I mean, I, I have to joke because because they are just like girl bossing too close to the sun. They are terrible people. But I, I do yeah. think it's interesting that we are kind of getting this a displacement in the known gendered politics of the Nile. And I'm not seeing like, yeah, a win for equality because like they're still awful. But it is interesting <laughs> to see different representations of women throughout fiction. Like, yeah, some representations have to be good. Some representations have to be bad in order for there to be authentic representations of people. You know? No, I, I absolutely. I, I totally agree. Uh, so anyway, Gira Staros, another complicated lady. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what else is complicated? Uh, the relationship between Dalna and the Jedi, because it is a storied one. It is one that goes back is it? Is centuries. It you know, you I could like- say it is one that goes back 150 years. Uh, where have we heard that number before? Huh. Hmm. I wonder. Huh. I don't think I've actually ever heard that number before. It's the no. first time I've ever hearing it. Interesting. It's not like phase two is going back 150 years in the past. <laughs> oh, wait, it is. It is. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Donna. Let's talk about Donna because yeah. this is really, I think, where the politics shines quite a bit, um, but not enough because there's still so much secrecy about what happened between Donna and the Jedi. Like, what went wrong? 
The Jalan Temple was built 150 years ago in the aftermath of a devastating battle on the planet. So this devastating battle that occurred is apparently called the Night of Sorrow, which is what Honesty called it. And um, even though Shania says it's not supposed to be talked about, you know, it, it's not good to speak of the dead. Honesty opens up a little bit about it, and it says it was a t it was a point in time where the Republic answered a call for help when Dalna was newly settled, and there was quote unquote confusion that led to the death of many people, and a lot of people still blame the Jedi for what had happened during the Night of Sorrow. The timeline seems to be Night of Sorrow happens. A lot, a lot of stuff, a lot of bad stuff happens. People die, and then the Dalnans and the Jedi then sort of split off from each other. The Jedi are maybe in the midst of or finalizing their temple, so they still keep it, but the Dalnans hold that distrust and they become standoffish and say, you know, keep keep where you are, don't interfere with our stuff, we'll let you stay here, but like stick to your lane, basically. What do you make of this history? And do you think this is going to be explored in any capacity as part of phase two? Well, firstly, I will answer that second question. And I just have to contradict you in order to win the bet. And I'm just going to say no, just for fun. And I'm probably wrong. I'm probably wrong. But I think they might not talk about this in the second phase. And I might be eating my words in five or six or eight <laughs> months. I don't know how long it is from now until then. Um, you will. But just, I'm just going to, I just have to say no <laughs> on principle. I have to say no on principle, but probably yes. Um, but what do I think about this? I think this is a really, really interesting because I think it says a couple of things. And I think the first thing that it says is that there was a lack of proper communication and resolution after this event happened. That maybe the Republic just left. And maybe they didn't actually come to any sort of understanding about what happened. Maybe the Republic never took responsibility for what happened. And maybe they did, but maybe the Dolans were still distrustful, which would be entirely fair. But I'm, I'm, it, it makes me feel like there was never like an actual, they said, okay, event over, you know, wipe our hands clean, let's go. Especially after rushing into it, maybe with some exactly. incomplete information, right? And, and leaving exactly. a devastation in their path. And I think that's all makes a lot of sense for the people at Donna. Now they have this bathed in distrust of the Jedi, distrust of the Republic that makes them become a little bit more isolationist in their nature because they don't want to be hurt again. However, I think this also makes them vulnerable to this sort of situation because they will not speak up when there's an issue. And I think like the ultimate answer here between the Jedi and the Republic and the Dalmans is proper communication about culture and understanding. But um, like, I understand where that's complicated when there's a billion planets and also a billion cultures and, you know, all these different things. So I think the, the hint we get about this event is very interesting and absolutely leaves the door open to exploring what happened in further detail and whatever it is, it's probably pretty awful. And we're probably going to be like, oh my God, Jedi slash Republic, you did a bad. You did a real bad. And um, I would be fascinated to see it happen in, in a book or, you know, within the higher public. And you are probably right that it will. Yeah. And I think it's also possibly a lesson of um, cooperation makes us stronger um, because, again, we don't know the situation. 
Um, I think there is probably blame to be put on both sides of of the battle, you know, between the Dalnans and the Jedi. And I'm curious if it is explored what what did happen, right? And we know that Justina's next book is called Path of Deceit, and she's co-writing it with Tessa Grattan. So part of me thinks, well, maybe we're going to see the deceit, the lie, the 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 tomfoolery. Right, you know, maybe the signal that went out to the Jedi asking for help was not from Dalna. Maybe it was from Ooh. a third party in order to cause chaos and cause confusion and cause a rift and set up the future for this sort of thing to happen. Right, weaken the galaxy on the on the outskirts, like create distrust. And it's very possible that this YA book could explore that, and I think it will. And you and I, to all listeners. Uh, we've made a bet. We have made a bet. An actual yeah, real bet with actual real $10 involved. Yeah. Yes. So if one Hamilton, path, if Path of Deceit, we decided is either an A plot or a B plot uh, of the Dalnan Jedi conflict, Sarah owes me $10. $10. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. owe you $10. Yes. If it is not about the Dalnan Jedi conflict, Brad owes me $10. Yes. Now, because we are saying this before celebration, Brad has given me an out to this deal. One out. If I'm you get sitting one out. there before the <laughs> publishing panel going, shaking in my boots, worried that I'm going to be proven wrong in that moment, <laughs> he will allow me to, to get out of this one. However, however, we might stick it all the way through here and uh, stick it out all the way through and uh, see what happens with this book. Once but that panel know, starts, you're locked in. You'll know by celebration or after celebration whether I'm in or out. <laughs> we'll probably also have a little bit more information about the books in general, too. Uh, so, so you'll know. And um, I may or may not be handing Brad $10 in May, or I may or may not be handing Brad $10 in October slash November. We will see. We're going to be at celebration, and Justina and Tessa are going to be on stage. And they're going to be like, well, our book... Uh, it's called The Path of Deceit, and it's all about the Dalton conflict. You're just going to, everybody's going to look at Sarah, like, who had just swore out loud and, <laughs> you know, see every, see her handing me $10 in the front row because we're going to be shills and we're going to camp out so we can be in the front. So um, I you know. really love how you have, ex like, exclaimed my reaction as, as opposed to, like, ah, or, or literally anything else. It's like <laughs> Sarah swears out loud <laughs> in public. <laughs> <laughs> And the, the cover are, is going to be Dalna. No, it's it's, it's literally going to be Dalna, the planet, and it's going to say Dalna <laughs> <laughs> with a big sign and big neon letters point like the arrow pointing at the yeah, planet yeah, yeah. Dalna. <laughs> Dalna. Uh, art art so, artwork not final. <laughs> so you guys, um, thank you so much for joining me in the journey of this yeah. bet. I'm probably going to put on the clown makeup sooner rather than later. But we will see. Maybe Brad yeah. will put on the clown makeup because I have to tell you, he is a very very confident maybe we can have our friends of the force meet up uh, after that panel so everybody who attends can be like hey did you get your ten dollars who got the ten dollars yeah. and we can and update they can everybody point and laugh at me yeah and then i'll, I'll use that ten dollars to buy everybody denny's so it all is part of the plan it's all part <laughs> of the plan not, round of bacon on me you shouldn't promise that <laughs> <laughs> who wants a scrambled egg our, our <laughs> listeners are very lovely people and um but if a bunch of like a lot of them show up to this denny's thing i don't know if we have the money to pay for everybody's denny you might have to split that side of bacon into like one sixteenth once hey one one side of bacon for the whole table yeah that's three strips of bacon oh, it's okay we're gonna cut it in fours we're gonna cut it in eighths yeah <laughs>
<laughs> oh boy well we'll see oh, we'll see what happens but yeah, i so i actually the, the big money bet so 10 whole dollars yeah yeah i i to be honest though like all bets aside i actually really do like do you want this to be explored like do you want the storyline do you want to see what happened and and yeah. all the distrust that was created because i feel like there's really a, an interesting story here especially when you think about the republic's colonialization and how they're expanding into the republic and if we view this alongside the republic also expanding into Tegruta territory at the exact same time and the mm. Tegrutas are distrustful of the Republic mm -hmm. and want their own territory guarded. It's like, how are each of these planets reacting to the encroachment of the Republic? And so I think it could really nicely fit into this whole theme, especially in the wake of a disaster when like that encroachment actually causes the death of many people on that planet. You know, there's like a really big sure. tragedy that happens. Because the more we talk about it, the more layers I feel this conflict gets. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. but maybe people lay this other layer. And that seems really interesting, too. So, so yeah, I don't know. All very interesting, I think. Yeah. Well, time will tell. And so will my wallet. All right. Let's move on Can't now mind. to our sort of final section, which is Emery and Vernestra. Master mm -hmm. and apprentice, right? So we have this really awesome relationship that is now expanded upon from a test of courage where we leave off and emory has his new master after almost succumbing to the dark side which i still think is like a highlight of the high republic what he goes through in that book and how he snaps out of it i think is really really just good stuff yeah and we have some also like interesting jedi philosophies like jedi questions that come along with that relationship and how they each have their own set of feelings and like the, about their place in the galaxy and like what it means as the order starts to face new threats and how they continue to have to fight for their lives, even as kids. Right. And so it creates the sort of dilemma of like, what am I supposed to be feeling and what should I be putting my energy into? And what does it mean to feel attachment to those who are not safe anymore? Because this is a dangerous galaxy. And how do I cope with that? And I'm taught that there's no attachment. There shouldn't be attachment, but I worry for my friends who could die at any day. Right. So there's a lot going on between these two characters, and I think we could start with Vern. Um, she's okay. a character who obviously is very young, was like one of the youngest knighted in second centuries, maybe the youngest knighted in 150 years. Who knows? Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> who knows? Uh, I actually think that might be accurate, but she's sort of wondering, like right in the beginning of the book, like what would past Vern think of present day Vern? You know, the, the Vern of the past would be communing with the force and focusing on meditation. And the Vern of today is fighting all the time. Like, would this old Vern be disappointed in who she sees today and who she knows she becomes? Mm. And Emery's sort of asking like a similar question, but more in like a broader sense. When during a dinner, Nyla and Vern are talking about the Order's responsibility to the Republic, and it's a conversation that makes Emery very uncomfortable, but it says, quote, as a Padawan, he didn't think he should have an opinion on the matter, but the truth was that he didn't like the idea of so much fighting. Lightsabers should only be used for defense, a principle both Vernestra and Master Douglas had stated repeatedly. But where was the line between defense and offense? And where was the balance between protecting life and taking it? Because that was the easy thing to do. Emery didn't know, and every time the conversation came up, more and more since the Jedi had mostly defeated the Nile, his face grew hot and he had a feeling he could only describe as spiky and disconcerting. What do you make of this conversation and, like, you know, Vern questioning how she would think of herself 
and Emery being like, what is the Jedi's place in the galaxy? And like, what do we owe the Republic when it comes to fighting a war that we maybe didn't really sign up for? I think that this is a really complicated position for both Vern and for Emery to be in because they're still both so young. You know, we know that Vernestra is young. She, as you mentioned, is one of the youngest knights in a very long time. And she immediately takes on a Padawan. She's barely a person herself. And yet she is tasked with um, training this other person. And, you know, in a test of courage, we we do like see some of her wrestling with that. Um, and throughout phase one, we, we see her wrestling with that and what it means to, to be like a teacher and a person who is still learning. And I think that both of them perhaps suffer from that just a little bit. And I don't think that's either of their faults. However, because they're just a couple years off in age, they don't have the world experience of having to deal with something like this before. You know, everything comes and goes, cycles repeat in our in our world. You know, we do not learn the lessons of the past, so we repeat them. And neither Vernestra nor Emery have had the and I hate to say opportunity because it's not like these things should be happening or like ought to happen or um, are inevitable, but they haven't had the, I guess I will say opportunity uh, to deal with this and get out of it on the other side. So they're both kind of having these parallel experiences, even though they're kind of attacking them from different angles. So for Vanestra, like I really understand her point of view because she's like, everything has changed so dramatically. And so have I. And would old me know who I am today? Would would I see myself in a mirror and recognize myself? And I think that's like a complicated question to have because like the world, the events of the world do change each and every one of us. I think we can probably both say that over the past two years and maybe say that for other key moments in our lives. Um, but she's kind of wrestling with her identity in this space and what it means to be a Jedi during this time in this space because she also you know, wants to look out for her friends and, and be responsible for them. But that also means, you know, going into action more, which is not something she sees as herself. Uh, and then for Emery, you know, he feels like he's in this position where he's too young and too old and not experienced enough. But of course he's experienced enough because look at, look at what just happened to him. And so he feels complicated, conflicted, like complicated opinions about and conflicted about what it means to be a person in this time and what it means to navigate uh, a war that he's been thrown into as a child. And, and so I think it's very interesting i just i hate that i'm saying the word interesting all the time and because i feel like i'm saying nothing but like <laughs> it's it's <laughs> i think it speaks to many different people's experiences today of the world around them no matter what they've gone through you know whether it's covid or covid plus war or covid plus you know something else in their lives in the past two years where it's like okay you've been thrown into this world and you're having to navigate a new set of rules that haven't been fully defined yet and I think the thing about this new world is that the rules are always changing because the situation is always changing. Yet, Vernestra is also not old enough to understand that the rules are always changing and therefore guide Emery through that. Um, and so I think they're in a position where both of them do lose out a little bit at the the wisdom um, of the typical master-padawan relationship that where you know the master is typically 
a generation older than the Padawan and has gone through some of these same emotional things and came out on the other side. Um, and it's tough. And there's this other quote where it says, sometimes she, Fernestra, wished she should be irrational, but that went against every single bit of her training. Being a Jedi was hard. And I think that's an interesting quote because it's like patience is a, is a good thing. But at the same time, like she's still a young person. Like she never got the opportunity to like make bad decisions mm-hmm. and learn from them. She's always been on this very particular path. Um, as I've been saying here, where she hasn't like done a stupid thing or gone through something terrible and then lived to see the other side of it and learn the lessons of it. So I think she's in a complicated position with her own growth as a person. Mm-hmm. Patience is so key to this book too, because they're, they're exercising a lot of it, right? Their friend Avon is missing. Mm-hmm. She's kidnapped and all they want to do is rescue her. But they both understand at the same time that they can't play favorites and that a Jedi's duty is to protect all people, not just the people they like the most. Right. And Avon mm-hmm. shouldn't get special treatment just because she's a senator's daughter or she's their friend that they've worked with before. Like, even though they're both itching to find her and they want to, they want to do it right away, they got to be patient and they got to, they got to do the right things to get there. Right. It's all about the, it's all about the path, um, not necessarily the result. And so even at one point, Vern wonders, you know, quote, this wasn't the all consuming focus of attachment that the order had so often warned Padawans about. Avon was her best friend. And more than that, she had once been Vernestra's charge. She still felt mm. a measure of responsibility for the girl. Vernestra would feel the same way if something were happening to Emery. It was only natural to worry and care about others, but she had to be mindful. It did not dominate her thoughts. And so it's like you can feel that impatience. You can feel that irrationality sort of bubbling to the surface, but you just can't let it overflow. And those are natural emotions to feel for both of them, I think. And this book is a testament to how they contain those emotions and how they balance them with the rest of what, whatever, uh, whatever else they're feeling, um, as well as being true to their duties and their responsibilities as Jedi. And so it's a tough, it's a tough line to walk, you know? What happens when your best friend has been kidnapped and you can't really do much about it at that, at that exact moment? I also think this is really interesting when you compare it to the parallel experiences that Comac Vitas and uh, Cantam Sai have towards the end of Midnight Horizon, because they both experience this situation where they know that things are happening to people that they love uh, on Starlight Beacon, and they know they're kind of powerless to do anything in that moment, and yet Comac wants to run to Orla to do what he can to help her and help the people of Starlight Beacon, and Cantam Sai knows that in this moment where they're needed, where they can do the most good, is on Corellia, and that's a really complicated situation for both of them to navigate, Mm -hmm. and... Like that doesn't change with age. And I think that's something very interesting is like, we all have these impulses to be irrational. We all have these, like um, these desires to, to help the ones we love the most. But sometimes the only thing we can do is be present in the moment and, and help the people in our direct vicinity, like physically around us or um, yeah. I, I think that it's interesting that two different kind of sets of people are going through this experiment experience as it relates to, the events of the fallen star or thereabouts it speaks to so much of the brilliance and the consistency of this initiative is like sure. how, how all these characters are experiencing pretty much the same emotions despite mm-hmm. their age or despite their experience right i mean it's it's not about what level of jedi knighthood or mastery that you have it's about being human 
You know, it's about being a living being that has all these emotions and has these complexities to us. And it's it's not always a straight line. And the Jedi is all about straight lines. It's about this. There is this. There is not this. There is the, not this. There is this. You know, that's the Jedi code. And we're living in an era of the High Republic where it's like, <laughs> there's a lot of gray area. Uh, all these Jedi feel that gray area all of the time. And how do you... It, like, is it okay to be in that gray area or should you be in the black or white? Right. Mm-hmm. So like, where do, where do you go? Like, where do you sort of drift your emotions as you, as you navigate that path? Um, that's sort of like fundamental to these stories. And I, I love how there's, there's a, um, there's poetry. It rhymes. It rhymes. It yeah. Rhymes. And I think, I think the constant negotiation of their identity um, as the rules change in this conflict is very relevant to what, readers are dealing with as well whether they be of the middle grade age and are just dealing with their identity as a person in the world as they grow and change and and navigate complicated social situations or whether you're an adult in the world reading this book or reading these books and and recognizing that um you know each of us is negotiating our our own identities um within the world at large and how we can be a responsible citizen to that world so one one final point on on their relationship, you know, I think it's I think it's just so great. Like all serious thoughts aside, these two characters are 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 really meant for each other with this teacher student partnership. I think they work well together because they are somewhat feeling some of the same things, mm. and I really like how they work off each other. And something in Tessa Courage that I loved about their relationship was how, if you remember, like Vern Nestra let Emery sort of figure things out on his own. She didn't always give him the answers, right? And you continue to see that here. At one point, uh, Emery remembers Vernestra's lesson of don't let your worry take hold of you, accept it and let it wash over you and propel you into action. And I think it's that important lesson that leads to this moment of triumph at the end where Emery comes up with the idea to bring Starlight to Dalna and to rescue Mm. everybody on Dalna. And it's a moment of pride for Vernestra, you know, to kind of feel that like all those things came together for him, right? Like all those lessons finally added up to this point. And it was just amazing. And even Emery's like, you know, I I know as Vernestra has told me in the past, we're at our best when we're helping others. And so it was really just kind of this cool culmination of, of that partnership and how they are kind of simultaneously friends who really trust each other. Um, but also they're teaching each other really important things. Um, it's not just a one way relationship. That's true. And I especially love too, when it says Vernestra Rowe, Jedi Knight, master to Padawan, Emery Kantaros needed a nap. And I was like, gosh, so true. uh, Despite her being a completely exceptional sort of young Jedi, she is just like us normal people. You know? know, she really, she really, uh, is quite the relatable young lady. We, yeah. I too, I too need a nap. <laughs> but you see so much growth with these characters and you know, Emery's mm-hmm. mastering his empath abilities through some of the meditations Vernestra recommended. And um, at the same time, Vernestra is making him very tranquil, making him feel very calm. Um, and there's even a little bit of insecurity on Vernestra's side. She feels like she wishes she could be as brave as Emery, who um, Emery doesn't really push away some of what he's feeling he sort of embraces it and accepts it and um goes with it and tries to figure out a way around it right and vernestra is dealing with a lot at the moment being a master but also having these visions even beyond hyperspace 
right? She's having them in random places while they're training. And so I wonder how maybe what she taught Emery can now be flipped around for Emery to teach Vernestra. And we won't see that probably until phase three, but I think that is something to look out for with these two characters. It's like, how does the, uh, you know, once I was the learner, but now I am the master, right? So maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe Emery is going to teach her something uh, about herself. I love how I was talking about the ways that their relationship maybe acts as a detriment to their emotional growth. And I love how you turned it around and we're like, actually, while that might be true, these characters also really, because they're so close in age, get to bond in a much different way than the typical pastor and Padawan relationship and allow themselves to grow together. And I think that's a really great framing of it. And I appreciate you kind of bringing up the strengths of a sort of relationship like that. I say good things sometimes. It's really great. You do. I mean, you do. I mean, I, I'm not yeah. surprised by that. I just, I just really I appreciate. You can say oh, it stop too. It. I am. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I just really appreciate the alternative point of view because like, I think mine is quite cynical and yours is like really actually tangible and hopeful and good. Thank you. You're welcome. Look at that. Friends of the force. <laughs> at it again. Look at us. <laughs> all right. Speaking of all things that are good. I think that brings us to our odds and ends of the episode. All right. So these are things that we did not quite get to during the episode, but feel it is very important to mention nonetheless. And I want to start with this quotable. It's from Emery. And he asks himself, thinks to himself, balance in all things was important, but where did cruelty fit into that structure? Nowhere, as far as he was concerned. And it made me think Speak of- Speak it, Emery Cantaros. Yeah. Say it like it is. It made me think of how some people say, you know, everything happens for a reason. And it's like, really? You know, you can think of like the worst thing. You're like, what was the reason for that? Right. And so this kind of feels like the uh, mode of thinking for Emery as well. Is like, really? Does, does everything happen as the force wills it? Why would the force will some of these like horrible, horrible things to be happening? Right. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question to ask for sure. So. I just think that's a really thoughtful, you know, thing to say as well, because it really then hits back to our conversation about slavery and indentured servitude. Where does that have a, does this have a place in the Republic? You know, is, is this, is this balance? Absolutely not is, is Emery's answer. And I um, think that his like very definitive outlook on the idea of, of cruelty and, and within balance is, is really, really valuable. Cause I think that maybe some other people in the order might even disagree with him. Yeah, absolutely. My big odds and ends is J6 as a character, an incredible, lovely to ride. J6 in this one gets like a blaster upgrade. It has a lot of blasters and gets like a dialogue upgrade. So they're sassier and all that good stuff. Also wants the Joba oil. And I love that she's <laughs> like, hey, I want the Joba oil. Can you like at least bring me back the Joba oil? And then they totally forget the Joba oil. Um, <laughs> failure on the human's part. But at the same time, she's on the ship scanning like every single possible airwave to listen to Avon and very like obsessively doing this, partly because of her programming as like a babysitting sort of droid and uh, a maid droid, but also because she knows that Avon will reach out. And again, this consistent confidence in Avon and her abilities and um, in her skills from the people around her is the sort of validation that I think every young woman needs in her life. So I really do love to see it from the other characters in the story towards Avon. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of Avon, 
my next odds and ends is the fact that she started to study a lot of Nile lore. She got to know how the how the Nile were organized into tempests and storms and etc. And she also read some rumors about a gravity well projector, which we know from Out of the Shadows that Chansey Yarrow is building. And she builds it. Uh, and Marcian Rowe puts it on full display in, in Eye of the Storm. And in Eye of the Storm, uh, back on Coruscant, after they find out that the, this thing is happening uh, and they don't know how to stop it, they say, let's call in Kevin Tarr. And Kevin so Tarr! here I am thinking, you know what? You know, Avon is laughing about the idea of a gravity well projector because she's like, that couldn't happen. That's not a thing that could happen, right? And it is a thing that is happening, right? And so I think for her to laugh at a thing indicates that she knows a thing well. Um, and to me, that maybe makes me think, huh, what if Avon Steros and Kevin Tarr put their minds together and they Scooby-Doo this shit, as Dr. Strange would say? Would love to see it. I think that would be an incredible, incredible team up. I think that we as readers deserve it. We deserve it. Not need. We deserve it. We deserve it. We are Star Wars fans who deserve. (laughs) And, uh... Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess we're just pro STEM here in the Star Wars universe. Absolutely. Let's see more of it, please. Please. (laughs) My next odds and ends is um, something incredibly important. I don't know how this didn't come up in our conversation before, and it is the noodle cart. Rip. The noodle cart on Port Haleep. Rip. Imri looked at the destroyed noodle cart and sighed before holding his hand out and moving it so the cart turned right side up. What can the Nile have possibly gotten out of destroying a noodle cart? And not just any noodle cart, but the best one in all of Port Haleep. Coco Noodle had made the spiciest, tangiest noodles, and now Coco was nowhere to be found, and the cart itself was little more than a bunch of twisted metal. A Jedi was not supposed to nurture negative feelings, but Emily really hoped that whoever had destroyed their noodle cart ended up with burrs in their underthings. It's the least they deserved. <laughs> I Relatable. love Emery's passion for the delicious noodles i too share a passion for delicious noodles Who doesn't? and it is a dang shame that there are no delicious noodles on port Haleep anymore hashtag not the noodles hashtag not the noodles oh not the noodles exclamation point not the noodles yeah it's like the guy from yeah, avatar yeah. he's like my cabbage my, my noodles yeah. exactly it's the same vibe 100%. All right, so my next odds and ends here is a George Lucas call out potentially. So you mentioned earlier how Avon was using the board game to uh, put together some pieces to slice open the door since those pieces resemble the locking mechanism. And she organizes these things into three piles useful, maybe useful, and trash. And it made me think of George Lucas during the prequel trilogy when, you know, they're doing the art concepts for these movies. And he had his three stamps and the stamps were deep regret. Okay. And fabuloso. And it just made me think of that. I don't know if it's on purpose, but it felt very, very specific, you know, like the three piles and they're kind of all very similar. Like, you know, deep regret is kind of like trash. Okay. Is maybe useful and fabuloso is useful. So it just, you know, made me think of that. Um, Mm -hmm. In the spirit of our attack of the clones month, it just, you know, prequels on my mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I felt it. I felt it. 
very important connection you've made here it's like it's like that one meme from buzzfeed unsolved you're like i've connected the dots it's like you haven't connected shit (laughs) i connected them like like i feel like that but also you totally might be right you know that's what i love about this sort of stuff um i have to mention our new lovely jedi that i loved to get to know in this book the jedi of the dalman temple we have lissa vats nyla quinn and yasek sparkburn yasek is a great cook nyla is like very wise and lissa is an archivist and together they are three cool jedi and we love to see it we really really do and i know we did not touch on their characters really in our main conversation but just here to give them a lovely shout out because i love learning more about new jedi especially jedi who are not on the typical jedi path that we have seen in all the movies i love you archivist jedi lissa Vox. <laughs> also lissa Vox always forgetting her lightsaber or like kind of very quote iconic unquote forgetting you know so she she doesn't have for, to fight for, i forgot my lightsaber <laughs> and then yasek's like here it is she's like damn it <laughs> she's like oh should have put it under the bed last time <laughs> i will say though time. i will say though yasek does make a uh, purple steam beans uh mm. and Vern thinks it's very good and she does wonder uh if it's as good as some of porter's cooking and i would love to see yasek Spartburn and porter Engel do a cook-off we've had the galactic bake-off spectacular why not a cook-off why not purple steam beans versus nine egg stew would love to see that comic that's all i'm saying continue <laughs> i think that you know, we've got to have more than just a few Jedi cooks. There's got to be a Jedi cook for every temple. You know, there's got to be some really great Jedi chefs. Somebody's got to make food in the Jedi lunch rooms. You know what I'm saying? So, like, what if we had not just a cook-off, but, like, you know, like, the equivalent of, like, a celebrity baking show, like a celebrity, like a like a Jedi hollow mm. reality competition show. And then you can root for your favorite, like, temple cook or whatever. Like, yeah, I'm on Team Dalna. <laughs> Make it a whole like multi-season. I'm down. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Put it on Disney Plus. Yeah. Please. Yeah. Okay. I've got one more. And that is that there is, once again, going back in time for no reason at all, uh, a geological survey that was conducted by the Republic over two centuries ago. So that's like a long, longer time ago. Um titled seismic events and their role in force confluences now let's look up the definition of confluence ladies and gents the junction of two rivers especially rivers of approximately equal width you know what um a confluence could also you know like a similar word to confluence the coming together of of two things like rivers you know the process or act of merging i don't know there's this there's this like book just like coming out by zarada cordova and and like this is a really crazy crazy coincidence but it's called convergence oh what could it mean i'm just i'm not saying anything but i'm also not saying nothing thank you okay so we know that every wave of the high republic sort of focuses on one planet one event one area let's just say yeah wave one of phase two is all about dalna that's the centerpiece okay you have path of deceit which is about the the betrayal then you have convergence which maybe there was a forced confluence on dalna underneath all that volcano i'm just saying it's a it's a possibility and then whatever quest for the hidden city is i don't know what that's going to entail but maybe dalna also but you know i think you know i can tell you brad i think i can pretty confidently tell you that there's going to be a quest for a hidden city in quest Ah, for the hidden city I know. Sounds, I'm sounds full right. of big, big smart brain particles yeah. up here. Big if true. Big if true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
So my final odds and ends here is a quote from Dr. McCampa, and she says, while they're fighting Vernestra, you have your tricks, but I have science on my side. And my rotting brain that's full of TikToks and vines immediately thought of the uh, old vine of that kid who goes, I got the power of God and anime on my side. And then he just screams. Um, <laughs> so I thought that was, uh, that, that was pretty similar. And I would wonder if uh, Justina put in a vine meme in here. And I'd like to think so. I, I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, okay. I would like to think that's the case. I would like to think that's the case. So I again, love that. I love that. Again, for you again I have it. TikTok brain rot. So this is all, this is all part of that. I mean, don't we all at the end of the day, um, permeates our entire culture. Uh, but I think that brings us to, you know, our very, very final segment here, which, which is what's next. And obviously like phase two and phase three are what's next. We, we know that the fallen star is next, but yeah, what, what's next for these characters, bro? I have a couple of questions and, and mostly, you know, how is Vernestra's visions start going to start to come into play? We know that Maria Santeca sort of transferred this ability to her and whether or not that ability really starts to come through will be seen later on. We know that Vernestra joins Avar's mission to root out Lorna D. Um, we know that Avar comes back to the Starlight Beacon. So my questions are, do Vernestra, do Emery make it out? of the starlight beacon as it explodes. I hope so. You know, we, we do see Renestra in the higher public number 15. Uh, Avar senses her through the song of the force. So mm. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. That being said, there are people dead on that page, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah. there are dead people on that page. Um, I, though I, I would like to think people would not die off page. I, I don't think we would learn like, oh, by the way, Vernestra died. Like, the, I don't think that would ever happen. I think if we're going to see a death, it's going to, we're going to see a death or read about a death. Um, but it's not going to be like an offhanded, like unceremonious death of like, hey, by the way, uh, Emery and Vernestra both died aboard the Starlight Beacon. We'd be like, okay, like, you know, at least all the characters who have died thus far, we've seen these circumstances around the death or the death itself. Sure. So I, I don't believe that would happen because that is super disingenuous. I don't think they are that cruel. <laughs> Maybe. Um, yeah, no. I don't know. Uh, I do think it's really interesting that you mentioned her visions because like in this book, they happened outside of hyperspace, which is where they typically where they happen before. Does this mean they're more powerful? Does this mean they are having a greater effect on her day-to-day -day life? Uh, could that be more debilitating for her? I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Um, and yeah, like where are all these characters going to be in the next phase when we see them again? I hope they're all thriving and doing well, but the truth is they're probably not going to be. So, ouch. Ouch, indeed. And we have to wait probably a whole year and a half till we find out. Life is so hard for us right now. Maybe two years, actually. We might not Don't know. Don't even say that. Don't even might, say that. We might not even know until 2024. So, um, stop it. But I got to say, Sarah, this is our last book discussion of phase one. Sad. you know phase two comes out october and i can't believe like i can't believe like how much i've bought into this absolute nonsense of a series like i'm gonna have spent so much money on these <laughs> diddly darn books like i love them and like this is not a complaint but like oh my god they really wrote me and they really got they me good. really did i'm really regretful but not regretful at the same time my shelf space is like please stop 
Yeah, like I bought a bookshelf, I put it all up, and now I have no room on the bookshelf. Like somebody recently (laughs) said to me, like, oh, Sarah, you need another bookshelf. I was like, how dare you say that? I literally just bought another one and I don't have room. (laughs) Did you really? No, I'm saying that's what you would say to them is like, they're like, buy another bookshelf. You're like, that's what I did and it didn't fix anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And somehow they're both full still. (laughs) Well, do you have any parting words for phase one of the High Republic before we say goodbye on this podcast until October? ouch please be less ouch next time yeah but also don't be less ouch next time because i don't know i guess i I live for the pain in this regard like the (laughs) books have been good the books have been good i've been happy um but you know my final my, my final thoughts for our listeners are like if you missed any of our book discussions if you're not totally caught up they're all in the feed come join us on all of our emotional adventures there's crying involved so you have a lot to look forward to really yeah, we have had a couple people who have found our podcast and were like, hey, I was looking for discussions on Fallen Star or Mission to Disasters. So, like, if you joined in late in the game, like Sarah said, there's a lot. Um, author interviews. Um, we talk about other books besides The High Republic. So, yeah. And I just want to yeah. say, too, for everybody who's stuck around, old or new, like, thank you for tuning into our, our book discussions, our crazy, lengthy book discussions this past year. Our excessive book discussions. <laughs> like, we never understand the assignment. But, uh, you know, that can, that can like, it'll be shorter this time. Yeah. 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 Like, no, yeah. You know. But we're just uh, so grateful to, to be able to do this on the, on the podcast and there'll be plenty of books to talk about until October. So don't worry. We're not going anywhere. We got Kenobi. We got a Kenobi book, many Kenobi books. Multiple. We got yeah. Han and Leia's wedding. We got tons of stuff coming up on the podcast. So stay tuned for more. As always, make sure to follow sarah and i on twitter letterbox and goodreads and sarah also has her instagram sarah's puzzled pages where she's talking all about books over there star wars and non-star wars related and wherever you're listening make sure to subscribe to the show so you get our future book discussions right in your podcast feed and they just pop right in there and you can tune in and if you have a minute in your day please leave us a review let us know what you like about the show what you what you want us to continue doing what you appreciate that helps us to get a gauge of of uh, what we're doing right and hopefully we can continue to give you that joy and that entertainment yeah and we also have a patreon so if you'd like to hear more of our comics conversations specifically for the higher public we do that on our series called the force pull list which is available at the two dollar tier however our tier started just a dollar and we are so seriously grateful to all of our patrons who help make this show happen and you guys all mean the world to us as as truly do all our listeners it's wild that we are able to do this and that people actually like care about what we have to say so thank you and a special shout out to our patrons amy anna brian carol cheryl clay danny deborah donnie elegy huang jen knights of friend levi leanne Lindsay, lucy neil saber bouquet sky talkers travis t and our newest patron rob thank you all so much uh for financially supporting us it means the world <laughs> Yes, and thank you all for listening to this episode, this final book discussion of Phase 1 of Star Wars The High Republic. And until next time, may the Force be with you always.